Well, every year there are many disasters, earthquakes, storms, massive storms, cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes, depending on which uh, ocean they, they uh, derive from. Um, and the biggest storm or the biggest typhoon that has ever been recorded uh, is Typhoon Tip. Uh, back in 1979, uh, it stretches 1,380 miles across. That is 2,220 kilometers. That is from Perth to Adelaide, as the crow would fly. Uh, and reaching winds gusting up to 300 kilometers per hour. Absolutely incredible, of course, wrecking havoc as it goes along. Uh, but storms does not have to be or do not have to be uh, big to cause death and destruction and devastation. Uh, it does not matter whether a storm is big or small, losing loved ones, Losing livelihood, losing your home, all that you work for is, is crushing, uh, even if it is a small storm and not a, a record-breaking storm. Um, I think that the worst storm there is, uh, is the storm that you're in. Uh, the storm that affects you personally. Um, and it doesn't always have to be physical storms that wreak havoc in someone's life. Uh, all of us have endured trials and, 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 and tribulations and temptations uh, as we've gone through relational storms, economic storms, social storms, spiritual storms, uh, physical or health storms. Uh, all of us have, have suffered that. And, and you may even be in a storm at this moment. Uh, you are sitting here and on the outside you are calm and composed, but inside you are being battered and bruised by the waves of adversity and the winds of calamity in your heart, wondering, Lord, why? Lord, how much longer? Lord, where are you in this? And if that is you, I want you to know that if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, then he has led you into this storm. He is interceding for you in this storm. He will come to you in this storm. And he will strengthen you and reveal himself to you in new ways so that you would grow in your faith in this, in this storm. And really we find these truths that I've just mentioned, these certainties taught to us through the account of Jesus walking on the water on one stormy night with his disciples in the classroom at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, being the ultimate teacher, used the storm to grow his disciples in their knowledge of him. And so by knowing him more, that they would believe him and trust him even in the storms of life that would come later. And so when you are a child of God, the storms that hit your life are really faith builders. They teach us about the Lord. And as we know more of the Lord, our faith enlarges. And so this morning, please take your Bible to um, Matthew chapter 14. 
um, verse 22. And from this, well, let me let us read that um, first. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the waves was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men in that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. And let me pray for us. Father, this morning we pray, Lord, that you would teach us the lessons that you have taught your disciples through this marvelous miracle, Lord, that we would see, that we would know, that we would understand, that we would believe. And so help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And really from this, from this passage, I want us to, to see four certainties, really four assurances, four facts, that when we find ourselves in a storm of life, that we can be sure that Jesus brought us here brought you and me here, that Jesus is praying for us, that Jesus will grow us and that, oh, so, sorry, Jesus will come to us and that Jesus will grow us. And so let's look at these first, these certainties. And the first certainty is that Jesus brought me here. Uh, when we are in a difficult season, a storm, we can know for sure that it is not by random accident. Jesus sent us into the storm. He is sovereign and his providence reigns over every aspect of our lives. We read in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now, this is just following him feeding the, the 5,000 uh, on, on the shores and uh, at, at, at late in the afternoon, early evening. Uh, and because of that, uh, we read in John 6, verse 15, that the people were looking to make him king by force. Jesus perceived that they intended to make him king by force. And this was not the will of the Father for him, for he is 
king. He, he will be king, but the path to his coronation led by the cross, led through the storm of the cross. And Satan offered him the kingdom earlier, the kingdom without the cross in the, in, in, the, in the wilderness. And Jesus resisted him and rejected Satan. And then we read that Satan left him for a more opportune time. Now he's back with a more opportune time, bringing the same temptations through the desires of men, this time seeking to give him the kingdom without the cross forcefully. Uh, and the disciples could have easily been swept away by, this, by the excitement of the crowd, for they were still did not grasp the true identity of who Jesus is. Uh, he was to them at this time uh, a rabbi or a prophet, uh, a powerful prophet who was able to perform miracles. And so Jesus made them get into the boat and send them to the other side. And, and the word made there is very strong. It's the word compelled. It's the word really forced them. Uh, he all but bungled them into this boat and sent them away to get them away from the temptation to make him king by force. Uh, and so... We read in verse 24 that uh, they were a fair distance away, a long way from the shore, um, what is called many stadia. Now, stadia is a, a stadium is about 185 meters. Um, and so many stadiums would be, I don't know how, how many, how many, many is, but it is more than, than one. Um, and uh, the lake itself is about 21 kilometers in length and 11 kilometers wide. Uh, needless to say, they were a long way from the shore. Uh, now, the disciples found themselves suddenly in a storm because why? Because they are in the will of God. Jesus sent them into the storm. He told them, he made them get into the boat to go to the other side. And so the question is, did Jesus know the storm was coming? And I believe he did because he wanted to teach them a lesson about himself. He wanted them to know who he really is and so that they would believe in him. And as we continue, we'll see, we'll see that more clearly. But Jesus knew the storm was coming and he still he sent his disciples into the storm. And you would say, well, well, isn't that a little bit irresponsible of Jesus? Isn't that like telling your kids to go and play on the tracks when the train is coming? No, no, no. This is like splashing water in the bathtub with your one hand while holding your little toy boat with the other hand secure that it will not sink. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is God. He can stir up a storm and he can keep their boat afloat. He can calm the seas. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he sent them into the storm to teach them about who he is so that they would believe, that they would grow in their faith. And Jesus does the same with us today. He brings us into a storm. He sends a storm. He sends us into that storm. So that we would know him, that we will believe him, 
And, and there are different storms, of course, that come our way. There would be, as one commentator says, the storms of correction. These are storms of discipline. These are storms of chastisement. When we are willfully disobedient to God's command and deliberately act contrary to his will, Jonah the prophet found himself in such a storm, the storm of, of correction. When he willfully and deliberately went against God's clear commandment to go to Nineveh and the storm hits. And so when a storm hits our lives, we need to discern, we need to pray, we need to ask, we need to examine ourselves to see, is this a storm of correction? And normally we know pretty quickly because our conscience and the Spirit of God convicts us and makes it very clear that we are in error and need to repent. Then there are the storms of perfection. These storms come to us when we are in fact doing the exact will of God. We are seeking his kingdom to come. We are seeking his will to be done. And this is what the disciples found themselves. They were in the will of God. They obeyed the Lord and got into the boat and was trying to get sailing to the other side when the storm of perfection hit them. And of course, Jesus, the all-wise, all-knowing teacher, knew exactly what was necessary to teach his disciples so that they would know and learn about his true identity. And that is true of us today. The storm that hits your life is tailor-made for you. It is exactly, it will bring you to the exact point that you would come to know the Lord in the area where you do not see Him as Lord, see Him as God, worship Him as such. And so our storms are fit for purpose to accomplish the Lord's perfecting of our faith, our growing of our trust in Him. There are also storms of, of persecution. These storms are in fact doing, when we accept, when we're doing the exact will of God, as I said, doing the seeking His kingdom and His will to be done. Uh, the disciples found themselves in a storm of persecution in Acts 4 and 5 when they were proclaiming the gospel exactly as the Lord has commanded them and suddenly those in authority turned against them. They rose up in opposition and persecuted them. And you probably can consider the storm of persecution similar to a storm of perfection. Um, and, but both teaches us aspects of God both show us the Lord more clearly so that we would trust him more fully and persevere through the persecution. It makes us stronger to run the race and to keep the faith. And so when you are being battered by the waves of your storm, when the wind is against you, contrary to you, then Christian, you can know that the Lord has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He is not blind to your situation. He is not ignorant to your plight. He has, you have not escaped his notice. 
you are in fact exactly where he wants you to be, to learn what he wants you to learn. Jesus is sovereign. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He holds the stars in his hands. He directs the wind and the waves. He commands the lightning bolts where they should go. His rule and his reign is supreme over his universe, over every molecule in it. He knows where you are. He knows what you are going through, for he has placed you there. Because he loves you, he wants you to know him, to know him more fully, more truly, so that you can trust him. So in the storms of life, the first certainty that we can know is that the Lord brought us there. The second thing that we can know is that Jesus is praying for us. Verse 23, and after he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. And so after sending the crowds away, Jesus withdrew again. He went up the mountain to be by his father alone to pray. Now, we, we, we do not have the words of Jesus' prayer recorded for us. But I... If we, if we perhaps look at his high priestly prayer that's recorded for us in John 17, it may give us some insight into what Jesus may have prayed for his disciples. John 17, 6 tells us, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And so the Lord may at this stage because they do not fully know him, they do not understand exactly who he is, he wanted to manifest to his disciples the name of the Father, that they would know him, that God would be revealed to them. Verse 7 says, And, and, and uh, now, they came, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And so... Remember, the high priestly prayer was prayed just before Jesus' crucifixion. So here, maybe at the maybe, again, I'm speculating, um, he may have prayed that they would know who Jesus is and that the words, that all that he has uh, was, was, that is, that the words that he spoke, the deeds that he did was from the Father. He was acting as the one sent by the Father. John 17, 8, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood them, stood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. He wanted them to believe that he came from God, that he was sent by God. A little bit further down, verse 11 of John 17, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And so he prayed that he wanted to preserve them. He wanted them to be one as he and the Father is one, that they would enter in the same wonderful, intimate, close relationship with 
the Father and with one another as Jesus enjoyed with the Father. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And so perhaps the Lord on that mountain prayed for the protection of his disciples that, and that he would be able to guard them against the evil one, uh, all but the one who was destined to perish, Judas, who betrayed him to fulfill the scriptures. And so in light of this lesson um, that Jesus was about to teach them, the lesson about his true identity, I would think, and again, I, I'm speculating here, but I would think that Jesus prayed for his disciples and he prayed for their faith, that they would believe, that they would see, that they would know him. We know that later on Jesus prayed for Peter when Satan obtained permission to sift him like we, Jesus said to him, that he had prayed for Peter that his faith may not fail. And so when, at that time when Jesus was arrested, Peter denied his Lord three times, but his faith did not fail. And yet again, the Lord held out his hand to Peter and rescued him and restored him and grew his faith and his love for him. And so while the disciples were being tossed in the midst of the storm, Jesus prayed for them. And people, we may have speculated as to what Jesus prayed for his disciples back then, but we can be absolutely certain that in our time and in our day, in the storms of life and even in everyday life, that Jesus is praying for us. Why can I be so certain? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again to life, that he ascended to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Romans 8 verse 34 tells us. What, what is he praying? The passage goes on. So that we would know that nothing can separate us from his love. Not the storms of tribulation, of distress, of persecution, of famine, of nakedness, of peril, of sword. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, even the storm that you are in. Because Jesus intercedes for you. He intercedes for you so that you would know him, who he truly is in the storm of your life. And even if that storm is so fierce that may cause our demise, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so people, we need to know that when, if you are in a storm, that you are there because the Lord placed you there. And we can be assured and certain that the Lord who brought us there is also the one who prays for us. And the third thing we can know for sure is that Jesus will come to us. 
in the storm. Verse 25, and on the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, the Romans divided the night really into four watches. And so the fourth night would be from three in the morning till six in the morning, a terrible shift to, to draw for guard duty. Um, but uh, really, Jesus compelled them to go into the boat to leave the shores on the previous evening, probably around six o'clock. Um, and uh, so they've been on the waters, in the boat, for plus minus nine hours. They've been battling the elements. They've been battered by the waves and blown about by the wind. They've been rowing against the wind and against the storm for about nine hours. They must have been exhausted. Just on a side note, that meant Jesus prayed for that length of time. Intense, personal, direct prayer. And I'm sure they were, the disciples were, were desperate. They were, they were despairing, ready to give up, ready to give over. And then Jesus came to them. Just when I think they were at their last, Jesus came to them. And there's one thing that I have learned about the Lord in the storms of life, that Jesus is never late, but he is hardly ever early. His timing is perfect. He comes at the right time, the time of his choosing, when we have been corrected maybe for going astray, when we have been perfected in faith and perseverance as he determined that storm should work in us. And that is just it. Jesus, by design, brings us into a storm that is too much for us. A storm that seems unending, a storm that is overwhelming, a storm that seems too, too much to bear. Why? Because he wants us to stop trusting in our own resources. Our little boat, our little oars, our friends. He wants us to stop looking to them for help and look to him for help. He wants us to stop trusting in our own strength, our own power, our own ability. They've been rowing for nine hours and made no headway. They were stuck in the middle of the sea, far away from help. They could not overcome the storm by their own power. And Jesus wants us to stop trusting in our own perceptions our own worldly insights, our own worldly wisdom. These disciples saw Jesus and thought he was a ghost. How easy our perspective becomes warped in the storms. And so in the storm of correction took Jonah in the belly of a fish, as the scripture says, to the root of the mountains, basically to the bottom of the ocean as low as he could go 
And when all hope was lost, from the bottom of the ocean, Jonah prayed. And the Lord heard him and directed the fish to spit him out so that he may go and do the will of God. And here in the storm of perfection, he removed all hope until nothing was left but Jesus himself. And he came to them walking on the water. Jesus, God incarnate, overruled his laws of nature and walked on water. And the very thing that the disciples feared, the roaring wind and the raging waves, is what brought Jesus to them. He trampled down the waves under his feet, just like Job exclaimed when he wrote in Job 9.8. He, referring to God, alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Jesus came to them in the storm at the right time. And people, you and I can be assured that in our storm, the Lord will come to us. And the very trouble, the very difficulty, the very struggle, the adversity, the calamity that you face is what will bring Jesus to you. And it, is, it will prepare you to look for him. And it is my prayer that we who live this side of the cross will know when he comes to us. We'll recognize him for who he is. That we will look for him in the most unlikely place in the middle of our storm. And not be like the disciples who, when Jesus came, did not recognize him and believed him to be a ghost. When the storm of life hits your, your life, know for certain that he has brought you here. He is praying for you, and he will come to you. He is hardly ever early, but he's never late. And fourthly, he will grow you. Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's son. Jesus came walking on the water towards them, and they were terrified, literally shaking, scared, spitless, scared witless because they thought he was a ghost. They did not recognize Jesus because they were not looking for Jesus. They were not expecting Jesus. They did not yet know him as the son of God. And so when they saw him walking on the water, they thought him to be a ghost. And then the most comfortable words or comforting words a soul can hear Jesus said, 
take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Really, a, a verbal sandwich with the most amazing filling. The one side we have the loaf or the slice, take courage. A positive command to take heart, to be brave, to be confident, to be resolute, to be strong, to be unwavering. And then the other slice of the sandwich is do not be afraid. Really, stop being afraid because they were already afraid. So you stop being fearful. Stop being terrified. And then the glorious filling, it is I. In the Greek, it's only two words. Ego, eimi. I am. The words that refer to his deity, the words that God called himself when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said to him, tell them I am that I am sent you. And here the one who walks on water tells you to be courageous, tells you to be stop being fearful for I am. I am with you. I am here. God is with you. God is here. The one who calmed the storm, the one who healed the sick, the one who fed the thousands, the one who walked on this water, you know as rabbi and prophet, but now know him as God. The I am. Oh, if we would only cling to this truth in the storms of our lives, no matter how big the storm is, no matter the size of the waves, no matter the strength of the wind, no matter how small our boat, how weak our bodies in the storm, I am with you, says Jesus. He came to his disciples and he will come to us. So take courage and stop being afraid. In verse 80, 28, Peter never really backwards and coming forward. He got it. If this is Jesus who walks on the water, then he must be God. He must be God incarnate. And if he's God incarnate, then nothing is impossible. And so he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And this is what they call a first-class conditional sentence, meaning there is no doubt in mind here. The protasis is assumed to be true. If it is you, and I know it is, then command me to come. Can probably be better be translated as, since it is you, Lord, command me to come. Peter took courage. Peter stopped fearing, at least for a little while. Lord, since it is you, let me come to you. I suppose Peter reckoned that in a storm at sea, it is safer to be with Jesus than to be in the boat. And Jesus said to him, come. Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on water towards Jesus. 
Peter is the only fallen human being who has ever walked on water. Probably not very far, but walked he did. Now, before we criticize him for sinking, I think let us marvel at his faith. He got out of the boat when the storm was raging. He placed his feet on the water, probably testing. He stood up. He let go of the boat. And he strode out towards Jesus. He walked on water. He left behind the man-made things in which he trusted a moment ago to keep him afloat, to place his trust in Jesus in this storm. And that is what Jesus desires us to do, to stop trusting in our own resources, our own strength, our own, uh, our own abilities, and to abandon ourselves to Jesus, to give ourselves fully to him. He wants us to get out of the boat. To come to him, keeping our eyes on him. And while Peter's eyes were on the Lord, he walked on the water. He walked over the very things that he was afraid of. The circumstances, the wind and the waves that caused him great fear a moment ago. People, Jesus is our strength in the midst of our trouble. He is our help. He will strengthen us to walk to him, to walk with him in the midst of our storm. But Peter took his eyes off Jesus and saw the wind and became frightened again. Peter took his eyes off Jesus and focused on his circumstances and thought, this is not good. The winds are fierce, the waves are formidable. And he became frightened and he doubted. And when he doubted, he began to sink. Fear and faith do not reside in the same heart. In faith, he walked. In fear, he sank. The storm caused him to fear. His fear caused him to doubt. His doubt sank him. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately the Lord reached out and took his hand or took him by the hand. The Lord, rich in mercy and abounding in loving kindness, with great patience, he knows we are weak. And he is always there to grab hold of us when we sink. When we take our eyes off the Lord and look at our circumstances, and we begin to sink. People remember when we take our eyes off him, he never takes his eye off us. And immediately he reached out and took him by the hand. And we can be certain that he will never leave us nor forsake us. No one can snatch us out of his hand. And yet Jesus reprimanded him. Say, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this 
we need to understand this accurately because this is, this is very important. Peter sank not because he did not have enough faith. Jesus reprimanded him for his little faith, not because Peter did not have or conjure enough or stirred up enough faith in and of himself. It is never dependent on how much faith we can fabricate or produce in us. Because if that is how we think, then we will think, well, Jesus will only come and help if I believe hard enough. If I, if I increase somehow my faith, if I can muster up enough faith, then Jesus would come in. And if he doesn't come and if he doesn't help, then we believe that maybe I don't have enough faith. That's, 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 that's the wrong focus. The focus is not our faith, not the strength of our faith. And if you think that way, we actually take our eyes off Jesus and back on ourselves again. Because I now somehow need to conjure up enough faith and not look to him. The Bible teaches us that what matters most is not the measure of our faith, but the object of our faith. It's not so much how much you believe, but who you believe in. And Peter sang not because he had too little faith, but because he took his eyes off the object of his faith. He took his eyes off Jesus. Jesus said that, that it only takes uh, the faith the size of a mustard seed to, to move mountains. So it's not the amount of faith that is in mind here. No, Peter sank because he took his eyes off Jesus, the object of his faith. He looked away from Jesus. And our faith is only as strong or strong when it's placed, when it's focused on the person of Jesus. As soon as our eyes of faith are diverted from Jesus to our circumstances or anyone or anything else other than Jesus, then our faith is little. It is small, for our view of God is small. Because when we take our eyes off Jesus and look around and begin to think, these waves are huge. Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not strong enough. Jesus is not big enough. Jesus is not powerful enough. Jesus is not wise enough. Jesus is not loving enough. And we begin to sink. It's not a matter of how much you believe, but who you believe. It's a matter of the object of our faith. And Jesus reprimanded Jesus for his little faith because he looked away. He looked at the wind and the waves and he took his eyes off Jesus and he thought, Jesus is not enough to overcome this. And he began to sink. And so people always, and especially in a storm, keep your eyes upon Jesus. Trust Him. No matter how big the waves, 
He is bigger. Now, no matter how strong the wind, he is stronger. Now we we don't know how far Peter walked on the water, um, but he must have been close to where Jesus was because the moment he began to sink, Jesus reached out and took him by the hand and saved him. Now the Bible does not tell us how they got back into the boat. Uh, did, did, did the Lord carry him back to the boat? Did he drag him through the water back to the boat? I don't know. But I would like to think that Jesus grasped, or rather Peter grasping Jesus' hand, looking to him, walked with Jesus back to the boat. And this must have been very difficult for Peter, for it helped him to grow, grow in the knowledge of his Lord and also of himself. And that's usually the more painful part. And that is the nature of storms. Jesus does not send us into a storm so that he would learn how we would react. He sends us into a storm so that we would know how much we know of him and how much we trust him and how easily we take our eyes off him. He wants us to know him, to know his word, that his word is true, that his power is sufficient, that his love is eternal. And so Jesus sends us into the storms to reveal to us the things that we may still doubt about him. Perhaps you doubt God's salvation. Maybe that's what the storm of life, storm of perfection is revealing in your life, that you are doubting God's salvation. And you may note that I'm saying God's salvation, not my salvation or your salvation, because God is the one who saves the man who puts his faith in his salvation, his choice, his strength of faith, his ability to persevere should rightly doubt his salvation because we are so weak and we so readily take our eyes off the Lord. But the Bible teaches us that salvation is from the Lord. The Father authored salvation, the Son accomplished salvation, and the Spirit applies salvation to us. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it is a gift from God. Know Jesus is God. Know that he saves his people from this, this, and know that he is the mediator between God and man. Know that he accomplished our redemption, our salvation, our justification, our sanctification, our adoption into the family of God. Know it, believe it, because God said so when we come to him and throw ourselves at his mercy. The salvation he offers is worked by him. Perhaps you doubt still God's word. The storms of perfection has revealed that there 
are sometimes that you may have little faith in the word of God, that you take your eyes of what God has said. You simply don't believe, you don't trust the word of God given to us in the scriptures. Remember, in, e in every storm, there slithers a serpent, a wily serpent who whispers, did God really say? And Adam and Eve discovered that in the storm in the Garden of the Eden, uh, Eden when he asked, did God really say? And from then on, on every opportunity, every storm, every difficulty, every trouble, he is there asking, did God really say? And when the temptation, when the storms come, and you have the word of God says one thing, and everything else, and everyone else says the opposite, what are you going to do? Overcome the tempter. Overcome the fear by looking to Jesus, by looking to the word incarnate, the bread of life, the truth. Or perhaps the storms reveal that you still don't know God as you ought to, and you doubt his character. He's omniscient. Maybe God does not know I'm in this situation. For if he knew, then why is this happening to me? Or perhaps we doubt his power, his omnipotence. Thinking, well, maybe God knows, but he's not able to help. He's not strong enough to help. And we despair. For who will be able to walk on, on the waves of adversity and calamity to come as if, if it was not for God, if it's not him, if he's not powerful enough? Or worse, you may doubt his love. Perhaps you think, well, he knows when he's able to help, but he does not care. He does not care about me. He does not truly love me. Because why am I in this situation? And so you think his love is conditional on my performance. And this is really messed up when we start thinking that it's dependent on me. That I need to perform in order to convince him to love me. To accept me. So there are many reasons why we have little faith, why we doubt. For the Samaritan woman, the Savior was a Jew, and her well was too deep. For Martha, her brother has been dead for four days. For Thomas, I need to see the nail prints and the wound in his side before I would believe. For the fall on the road of Emmaus, it has been three days since his crucifixion. Not believing the word that Jesus spoke to them. 
And so storms are designed to grow our faith. They are designed for us to see Jesus more clearly, to know him more deeply, and so knowing him that we would trust him more fully. To trust him in every situation, for we know who he is. And that is exactly what happened to the disciples. Verse 32 says, And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's son. The moment they got into the boat, the wind stopped. The storm was calmed. And John tells us that immediately they arrived on the other side at at their destination. And this storm and the events that took place revealed to them who Jesus truly is. Their faith grew because their knowledge of him grew. In Matthew 8, you may remember when Jesus calmed the storm, his disciples wondered, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now they worship him. You are truly the son of God. They have grown in their knowledge of who Jesus is. And that's how we grow. We grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is through the word of God. And then the Lord seems to imprint that on our hearts through the circumstances he takes us through. Through the storms he takes us through. So that we would know by experience that the word of of the Lord is true. There's one thing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as Psalm 23 says, reading it from the pages of Scripture. There's another level of knowing when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you know that his rod and his staff, they comfort you. He's there with you. And so the disciples grew in their knowledge of the Lord and they worshiped Jesus. And verse 34 says, And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought him all who were sick. And they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were cured. And so they landed of Gennesaret. And Jesus was known or recognized in this region uh, perhaps it was uh, the, the area where he healed the, the woman who suffered from hemorrhage and, and who was healed by just touching the fringe of his garment because here they brought all the sick, sick to them and they were asking him, can we, can we just touch the, the, the fringe of your, of your garment? And all those who did were healed. And see, the, the people were still seeing Jesus as, as, as a miracle worker, as, as a healer. But his disciples now knew him as the Son of God. The people admired him for what he could do for them. The disciples worshipped him for who he is. And so in closing, who is Jesus to you? Someone to go to to fix things, to heal you, to make your life better, easier, more bearable? Are you seeking 
for Jesus only for what he can give you in this life? Or do you worship him as the son of God? The one who brought you into the storm, the one who prays for you into the storm, the one who comes to you into the storm, and the one who will grow you in the knowledge of him in this storm. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you, Lord, that, that you love us and that you care for us. And because you love us and you, because you care for us, you want us to know you. Oh, Lord, help us to know you. May we be like Paul, who considered all things but rubbish for the sake of knowing you, to be found in you, not to have a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but the righteousness of Christ that comes from God. Lord, that we may know you in the power of your resurrection and know you through the fellowship of your suffering to be conformed to your death. So that we would be raised up in your likeness. And so, Lord, we know that so often we, we know your word, we read it, we understand it. But it has not been tested in us. And Lord, so you send a storm into our lives to test us. To show us that you are true to your word. To show us that you are who your word claims you and states you and describes you and reveals you to us. Oh Lord, grow us in our knowledge of you. And as we know you more clearly, more fully, Lord, that, you, that our faith in you would also increase and abound. And that we would not fear our circumstances, but fear you above all. In Jesus' name, amen.